0: As you find your seat, I'll, I'll pass on greetings from Bill and Christine. They are in Rome on the second half of their trip. They were in Paris earlier in the week. They're in Rome today. They, they return to Chicago on Wednesday. But uh, Bill said that they were at St. Peter's Basilica for church this morning. So we have a little stained glass. He's been sending me pictures throughout the week of different churches, and all of his kids are like nodding, yes. They've been sending us pictures too. He's been sending me pictures of churches throughout the week, some one of which, two of which I've been to, um, but it still feels, there's definitely distance there, right? You know, you know Bill and Christine well, you can imagine what they're experiencing there, but we're still not there with them, okay? <laughs> this morning we're going to be talking about some of that distance, specifically relating the theme of persecution. Let me read this to you from uh, Christianity Today. It just occurred a few days ago on April 25th. In most Sunday schools, the question is an academic exercise. How many of you are willing to die for Christ? A Sunday school teacher asked that on Easter morning, and each of the children dutifully raised their hands. A few minutes later, at this church in Colombo, Sri Lanka, the Sri Lankan class descended to Zion Church's main service, passing through an outside courtyard where a stranger was speaking with church leaders. He had discovered there was no Easter morning mass at the nearby Catholic Church and was wondering when the service would begin here. He asked about the healing service. Observers report that he was sweating profusely. A pastor invited him to take off his backpack. Then an explosion. Many inside thought it was the generator. Half the children in that Sunday school class died on the spot. A seminary leader from the church recounted, all the children had responded to their teacher's question by putting their hands up and signaled their fresh dedication to Jesus by lighting a symbolic candle. For so many of those children, it would be their final act of worship. Lord, as we think on a, a serious topic today, and, and the straightforward manner with which you handle it, the, the gracious way that you want to teach us this morning, we, um, we're confident in your presence. We pray that you would teach us, Lord, through your word. Amen. Do You feel distant to that? Uh, most of you probably heard that news just a week ago on Easter. Um, Raylan Roland told that to me after lunch at our house. She said, did you hear about what happened in Sri Lanka this morning? Uh, The death toll in in mass in the multiple bombings now is over 250. Not all of them were in churches. There were some other places too. But in taking that in, which through the, the miracle of modern media we're able to, we see, we hear, we read stories like this, And there's a a certain mourning that we have, a connection to our especially our brothers and sisters who are going through this. But there's still a distance, isn't there? We don't anticipate someone walking in this morning. If they're wearing a backpack, it does not, probably for most of us, cross our minds that there may may, may be a bomb in that backpack apparently it didn't cross the minds of the pastors at the Sri Lankan church either. So even though there's a distance there, we we come to our passage this morning in 2 Timothy and, and have to realize that for Paul, he would not have had a hard time bridging that distance. Paul was a persecuted man himself. And hear this, probably aside from the Corinthian church, he was writing to persecuted churches. His letters were to people under duress. People that were being persecuted, had experienced persecution, who were wondering what it looks like to follow Christ in the midst of persecution. So here in 2 Timothy, as we've been going through for the last couple of months, Paul is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, young pastor Timothy in the city of Ephesus, a father writing to his son in the faith, and he's tasked, Timothy is, with leading the church in Ephesus, a persecuted church, and how Timothy can himself be the leader, the pastor of this church, and lead his church through persecution as he is entrusted with the gospel, holds firm to the gospel, and helps his people understand persecution through the lens of the gospel in this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3 page 996 if you want to turn there now paul wants timothy to understand something very clearly about persecution and he wants to make it also not so distant to us so let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 10 through 13 Let me read it. You, however, have followed my teaching. This is Paul writing to Timothy again. Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The main idea for the sermon this morning comes directly from this passage. If we could get that slide flipped, that would be great. Thanks, David. The main idea is this count on it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That bridges the distance right away. It brings persecution into our living room. It brings persecution into our sanctuary. It brings persecution into our lives. But it is a shockingly straightforward statement about persecution that should cause us to ponder What does Paul actually mean about this? How can he make such a broad generalization that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? Well, this morning we're going to ponder on that, take this straightforward statement, and pull out some questions that can help us to understand it. These four questions we'll be working through. What is persecution? All believers are persecuted? What is a godly life? And what about the promise that the title of the sermon implies? The promise of persecution. First up, what is persecution? Well, the Lonida Greek lexicon kind of brings the sense of the word here together. And it says, persecution, what Paul is talking about here is to systematically organize a program to oppress and harass people. What Paul is saying when he talks about persecution is he's zeroing in on personal, intentional activity against the church, against the Christians. You might remember Bill's illustration from, I think it was like March 24th, when he was talking about the evangelistic effect of enduring suffering. And he I think he ended the sermon with this, this picture of a mountain and God's intent and His glory dwelling at the top of the mountain, and because of the fall, all of creation is rushing like an avalanche down the sides of the mountain. Do you remember that? He describes suffering for Christians as being, through the grace of God, He has turned us around to begin hiking up the mountain. We are destined for God's glory. And our suffering is the friction that we experience because everything else is coming down against us. When Paul talks about persecution, I think we could use that same illustration, except we could get a little bit more specific. Because when he talks about persecution, the people that are coming down the hill are actually trying to take us out as we go up the hill. It's not just that we're experiencing friction, suffering through the world system, or through sickness, or whatever it may be, there are people coming down the hill that have given, have put us in their sights for whatever reason. This is persecution. Can persecution be martyrdom? Certainly. Can it be bodily injury? Definitely. But does it have to be physical harm? That's what we first think about when we think of persecution. Does it have to be physical physical harm? Not necessarily. Remember what Esteban just read from Matthew chapter five. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this: "Blessed are you when others revile you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account." Jesus is not talking about physical persecution here. He's He's really talking about the blabber of those around us that falsely accuse us, that revile us, that that call us something other than we're not. Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted in that way. If we look at our passage here, look at verse 11. Paul talks about my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and in Lystra. Paul brings these this, this situation, it was his first missionary journey, and he goes to these three cities, Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, and Lystra. And he brings these back to Timothy's mind, having known what happened to Paul, and specifically talks about the persecution that happened there. Which is interesting, because if you've, if you've read Paul, you know that he has a long list of things that were done to him when he was persecuted. But here in Timothy, he he focuses in on these three cities. It must have been an especially intense type of persecution. Maybe, maybe the first time that he really, really felt it. It was his first missionary journey. You could turn back to Acts chapter 13 if you'd like. You don't have to, but I can, I can describe it to you a little bit. So Paul comes into Antioch and he starts preaching. And his preaching is having an effect. He's having an effect. He's preaching both to Jews and to Gentiles and it's landing on them. Okay, The gospel is having a powerful effect on his hearers. In verse 48 of Acts 13, it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Here are people that had no clue other than maybe they had attended some synagogue. They had had no clue, no desire for Yahweh, for the one true God, Paul shows up, begins to preach Barnabas at his side, and the Gentiles hear this. They begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Resurrection stories start sprouting up out of Antioch. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So consider this. In this first stop in Antioch, the gospel's landing, the Holy Spirit is working, and stuff is happening. But the Jews began to stir up the people. They began to speak about Paul and about Barnabas, began to spread lies about them, and began to stir up this persecution that ultimately pushed them out. But don't miss the reality of verse 52. The disciples that were still in Antioch were filled with joy. They just witnessed this man that had brought them the Gospel, and they're still filled with joy. How about in Iconium? Paul and Barnabas leave there, they go to Iconium, and in verses 1 through 7 of Acts 14, again it talks about the Jews, and they specifically do this: they poisoned the minds of the Gentiles. Okay? They they said things, they whispered things, they they hush-hush things in the side. And they poisoned the minds of the Gentiles, and they tried to stone Paul and Barnabas, but it didn't happen yet, because then they left. And they went to Lystra. And in Lystra, it's the longest account of these three cities, an incredible thing happens. Paul and Barnabas heal a man who had never been able to walk. The power of God is shown right there physically in front of these people. And the people are so stunned that they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas as Greek gods. And Paul and Barnabas said, like, no, 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 no. We're men just like you. This has happened through the power of Christ. The gospel begins to land on them miraculously. And they tell the Jews, or they tell the Greeks there, turn from your vain idols. God has been merciful up until this time. Turn from your vain idols. But Jews from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they now stoned Paul. They were trying to do it in Iconium, now they succeed. They stoned Paul. If you don't understand what New Testament stoning was, New Testament stoning was a mob act where they picked up stones and threw them at the accused. And at the end of that time, there would be someone that would get up, usually it was down an incline, someone would get up and throw like a millstone down on this person to finish them off. Paul experienced stoning in that way. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and he went back into the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. This is the experience of Paul's persecution when he talks about persecutions and sufferings in our passage. There is the physical, yes, but there's also the verbal, There's the character assassination. There are the lies. There is the upfront opposition to the good news of Christ. So that's what we talk about when we talk about persecution in biblical terms. Second question, are all believers persecuted? The answer is yes. Paul tells us right here. And Paul's broader definition of persecution beyond the physical makes it, closer for us. He bridges our understanding of persecution and allows it to be true of us. Though we may experience it to different degrees. I know through talking with some of you, there are some of you in here that are enduring persecution today. You have people in your friend group. You have people in your office. You have people in your internship. You have people in your class that know that you're a Christian and they revile you for it. They openly speak against you. Brothers and sisters, that's persecution. That's persecution. We may never experience it like they did in Colombo last week, but we might. But whether we do or we don't, we are all persecuted. Kevin DeYoung writes this, Persecution is the normal experience of every Christian everywhere. From stiff fines, to family shame, to being kicked off college campuses, to laws against sharing their faith, to unjust trials, to public mockery and scorn, to arrest and brutality. If we faithfully follow Jesus in this world, we all will face persecution at some point in our Christian discipleship. So you might say, okay, granted, I'm understanding the broader definition of persecution that Paul offers here. I'm understanding that I may experience it to some degree, but ultimately, why does that matter? That we consider ourselves as persecuted. Is this to throw ourselves a pity party? Is this to say, well, they, I, we know they've got it bad over here, but we've got it pretty bad here. We're the persecuted church too. In a way, yes, but not in a pitiful way, yes. I'll, I'll read you a few reasons that actually Kevin DeYoung offers. He says, why does it matter that we consider ourselves as persecuted as, for the most part, lightly persecuted Americans? Well, for one, we don't want to miss out on the privilege of suffering even a little bit for the name of Jesus. Second, we should not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test us, according to 1 Peter 4.12. If we expect persecution to only come, to only come in the form of imprisonment and death, if that's kind of the box that we put persecution in, we will not know what to think of slander, derision, and disdain. The New Testament assumes that being hated for one's Christianity is the norm, not the exception. Third thing, De Young writes, if we overly limit the scope of persecution, we will neglect the Christian ethic incumbent upon us to pray for those who persecute them. If we don't see ourselves as persecuted, we will not pray for those who persecute us or who might persecute us. We, we miss that effect. And lastly, if if this is true that we all will endure persecution, the expectation of the entire New Testament is true, then no amount of PR work is going to rescue the capital C church or our local church from being thought by some as backwards and bigoted. I think as we ponder on this, a logical question to ask is, why is this true? What's going on that allows Paul to be able to say, we all have a persecuted target on our backs? Well, a couple of answers. Our identity in Christ is fundamentally at odds. With the world. The world loves the world and hates God. You, you, you want a, a little reminder of that? Read Psalm 36 this week. The world is opposed to God. Yet God has claimed us. Our identities in Christ are fundamentally at odds with the world. Paul calls us the scum of the earth in 1 Corinthians 4, the refuse of of all things. When you wake up in the morning, do you have that written on your mirror? You are the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. Maybe it would be a good thing to put on our mirrors. Or you could put this up there instead. We are the fragrance of death to those who are perishing. Someone from our from our church talked to me last week, and this person talked about how just just that weekend, Easter weekend, she had talked to her family and her family had persecuted her verbally, reviled her, drug her through the mud of all of her past. And the question was, why, why does this keep happening? Her identity in Christ is fundamentally opposed to the identity of her family. And will we not suppose that the the spiritual battle going on on a weekend like Resurrection Weekend would bring some of that even more visceral, even more experienced as the resurrection of Christ is proclaimed and those who are in darkness Don't want to hear it. Our identity in Christ is fundamentally opposed to the world. But the gospel of Christ is also fundamentally opposed at odds with the world. Consider what Paul was doing in Antioch, in Iconium, and Lystra. When he preached to the Jews, he was preaching freedom and forgiveness of sin to the self-righteous who thought they had no need to be forgiven. Listen to this. He tells them this in in Acts 13. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, he's talking to the Jews specifically here, "that that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. Freed! Freed from everything from which you could not be freed By the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come true. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Paul was delivering this gospel of freedom, forgiveness of sin, to those who didn't think they had a problem. The gospel was at odds to the Jews, yet it was also at odds. To the Gentiles, like I said earlier, when he started preaching at Lystra, he said, turn away from the vain idols that your fathers have worshipped for generations. The Lord has been merciful to you. He's given you rain. He's given you crops. He's given you wine and gladness. But today, he's calling you to repent. He's calling you to repent. Turn away from your vain idols and turn to the true God. He was smacking them, both groups, right where they needed to be smacked. He was exposing their cultural sin in a way that they either saw him, understood him as the fragrance of life, or Paul was the fragrance of death because they were perishing. So hear this, Christian persecution is distinctly Christ-centered, and it's gospel-rooted. Paul was bringing Christ to these people and declaring good news, and the result was persecution. This should cause us to pause as well because let's be careful not to claim persecution for secondary or tertiary reasons where we say, I'm being persecuted, I'm being hated on, when in reality, you're just not nice in your office. Your flesh gets too much of you too much of the time. When you go to family reunions, you're the one with the sour look on your face. People actually don't want to be with you. Let's consider, let's consider The Christian persecution is distinctly Christ-centered and gospel-rooted. Third question, what is a godly life? Because this is a key qualifier to this bold, straightforward statement that Paul makes. What is a godly life? The, The term godly is extremely important in the three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, where Paul is talking to pastors Timothy and then Titus. And he consistently brings back this word, godly. He wants his pastors to know you have to talk to your people about godliness. You have to talk to your people about what it looks like to be defined as godly. How will a life look when it is captured by grace and belongs to God? to the Father. What does He mean by this word godly? Pious, devout, God-fearing? But I think it could be summed up like this. When you're godly, you know who you belong to and you live like you love Him. You know who you belong to and you live like you love Him. Look at Paul's example in verse 3, chapter 10. Again, to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. These are all things that are true of Paul. The persecuted Paul. The Paul who, from the start, has not ever not been persecuted for the gospel. Yet he continues to have up, upstanding conduct, an aim in life that is Godward in his trajectory, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness. These are in stark contrast to what Bill spoke on two weeks ago from the beginning of chapter 3. But consider Paul. Paul brought the gospel in a way that was godly. His life reflected the reality of his good news. What we have to understand, brothers and sisters, is that right doctrine is never divorced from godly morality. Right doctrine, what you believe, is never divorced from godly morality. They're always together. One without the other is a damnable error. You can say, I believe all the right things, but if your life does not reflect it, that's empty. Or you can say, I do all the right things, but if you don't do them, knowing that aside from God's grace, you're a mess. You also don't get it. Look at chapter 2, verse 19, here in Second Timothy still. You, you see this marriage of doctrine and morals together. Paul says, but God's firm foundation stands. A foundation is what everything is built on. And he's saying God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, this identity. Listen to this. The Lord knows who are His. The Lord knows who are His. This is, this is doctrinally spot on, right? God, in His grace, calls us to Himself. He knows who are His and He draws us to Himself in repentance and faith. And He knows who are His. That's undeniable. And that is the basis of any saving faith. But then He says this, and, not a but, not an or, not a, this is now a second class thing to consider. And, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from, From iniquity. Depart from iniquity. Saying, some people might say, the Lord knows who are his and I am his, yet their lives run into iniquity, bathe in iniquity, celebrate iniquity. It does not work. It is not biblical identity in Christ. Instead, we depart from iniquity. We can rejoice in the doctrines of our justification and adoption as we should. The Lord knows who are His. But Kevin DeYoung penned another book. The title was fitting. There is a hole in our holiness. There is a hole in our holiness. Two days ago, or, no, yesterday morning, Simeon and I took a tire off of our Honda Pilot, all right, because it was indicating we had low tire pressure. We pull it off, found not one, but two screws in that bad boy, all right? The first one, I pulled it out and immediately, it was so ground in there that we had been driving on it for a while. And the pressure hadn't gone down low enough for it to register on the, the dashboard. As soon as I took it out, it was up. the car was up on the jack. We, we had it off, just so you know. Um, I took out the screw down there on the parking lot, and it starts to sh- come all the way out. Went ahead and stuck the plug in it, fixed it, rolled it over, second screw. Pulled that second screw out, and it didn't do anything is a small screw, it didn't quite have the ability to penetrate all the way into the tire. But if I had kept it in there, continued to drive on it, the pressure of the car, the pressure of the road, the heat as the weather gets warmer, hopefully, would have eventually pushed that screw deeper and deeper into the tire and caused another hole. Would you consider your life right now? Consider your heart. Consider the hissing. Consider the emptiness. Consider the the spiritual flatness that you're enduring right now. it may very well be because you are refusing to depart from iniquity. You've got that screw and it has penetrated all the way through and your tire pressure is going down. When I say that, there may be things that come clearly to your mind. Yes, Lord, by your grace, help me to depart from that. But then there may be some smaller things that you just dabble in. That you consider. You wonder about every once in a while. You just entertain those thoughts. Entertain that action. That motivation. And they're like the little screw. Like it's okay for now. Remember, I'm, I'm justified and I'm, a, and I'm adopted. I belong to God. I'm His son. I'm His daughter. It's all good. Don't play around with fire. Don't play around with the small screws. You could have a blowout one day. does not mean that you lose your salvation, but what Paul is trying to say here is that a definition of salvation, a marker of salvation, is that we don't mess around with our sin. We don't dwell in it. We don't love it. Look at 20, or chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Like Bill mentioned a few weeks ago, there's the, there's the downstairs silverware and platters, and there's the upstairs silverware and platters. Paul's talking to Timothy in the church. He's not saying, ultimately, you must cleanse yourself in order to make it to heaven. No, he's saying this. You're believers, but still be serious about sin. Still be serious in allowing the Spirit to search the depths of your heart and show you where you are wrong. Show you where you are continuing to live in sin that Jesus came to destroy. be active. Be active in seeing yourself cleansed, departing from iniquity so that you're ready for every good work. You're you're an upstairs vessel for the master. 222, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. What does it mean to live a godly life, to desire to live a godly life Flee youthful passions. Depart from iniquity. Run away from sin. You know what it feels like to walk down the block and see a pit bull that doesn't have a leash on it. You get timid. I'll I'll just speak for myself. Maybe, Maybe you're not as scared of pit bulls as I am. But when I walk down Hollywood over towards Ridge over here, Every once in a while, there's at least a pit bull being walked. We've got a lot of them around here. And that makes me pause. If I see there's no leash on that pit bull, I'm not walking there. I'm turning around and I'm finding a different way to get to where I'm going. Flee, run away from sin. Don't let it fester. Don't marinate in it. Don't entertain it. Run away from sin. Because when we don't, we become like the people that Paul described through Bill two weeks ago. In, verse, in chapter 3, verses 2-4. through four. I'll just handle the ones that talk about love. Lovers of self. Lovers of money. Not loving good. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. See, this is where it gets a little tricky. Because. Because. There's a slow drip of cultural anesthesia that drips into our veins daily. It says love pleasure. Love money. Loving good, waste of time. Love yourself post on Instagram. Do what you got to do to elevate yourself, to make your life comfortable. You have three hours free tonight. It's yours to use however you want. It's okay to be a lover of pleasure. You worked hard all day today. And the anesthesia lulls us to sleep. Lord, wake your people up. Wake me up. The time is short. Lord, redeem our time. That might be, I'll go out on the limb here, that might be our, our grossest error. As children of God, as people kids of the Father, that we just waste our Father's time. It does not mean that we have to be busy, 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 busy. It does not mean that we have to be reading the Word six hours a day. But the draw of our phones, the draw of binge watching, the draw of being in the gym for two hours a day when a half an hour would just do a nice These draws just... Do we take our time to the Lord and say, Lord, redeem the time. It all belongs to You. It's a work of grace when He helps us with that. When He does redeem the time. When He does wake us up. Because we are... Just because of where we live as humans... In 2019, the drip is incessant. I want to graciously, pastorally exhort us this morning to flee from sin. In Christ, we are new creations with a new Father. We do not have to sin. You may feel in bondage with, That's wrong belief. You have died to sin, and you no longer live in it because you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives within you. The power of God, the Holy Spirit, is alive in His people. That's why it makes it so maddening when Paul says in 3.5 that these people have the appearance of godliness but deny his power. These people do all the religious duty, but they don't believe the spirit can actually change them. They deny the power of God living in them. When they're tempted, they don't run to God saying God help me. They run away from God and cower in the corner and please themselves. Ourselves. Let's Let's be be frank here. Ourselves. Lord, wake us up. Lord, when we're tempted, let us run boldly before the throne rather than running away from the throne. Why do we swear? (laughs) So I'm going to name some things here and you might be thinking, man, he's getting really legalistic. No, this is about the reality that our father has made us his kids. And if that's true of you, you want to love him and obey him. You want to live for him. We want to live for him. So why do we swear? Why is it so easy for, oh my God, to come out of our mouths? Why is it so easy for us to say, damn, or hell? Why is it so easy for these things to happen? You know why it's so easy? Because we don't reflect on who God is, the reality of damnation, and the eternity of hell. It shows our theological ignorance and our lack of meditation. Why do we cheat on taxes? Does God not own your money? Why do we watch trash? Can God not fulfill you? Why do we steal from work? Why do we glorify ourselves on Instagram when our hearts have no room? They cannot hold on to glory. Exalting yourself for what? Vain pride? Please read Ecclesiastes. Why do we argue with people about secondary things when our identity is Christ and Christ alone? Why do we consider dating someone who does not know Christ when the spiritual reality is here? You're either in Christ or you're not. God, by His grace, has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So why do we dabble with saying, I I might love a person over here. You might love them, but love them to Christ. Not to go out on a Friday night. Not to consider marrying them. Why do we fret about retirement? One of my biggest prayers for myself as I get older is that I don't turn into a grouchy old man. It's true. It's true. May the Lord fill us with his joy. We are lights of the world. We are meant to shine, to look different. If salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. If a light is put under a basket, it can't shine. Are you salty in a good way? Are you salty? Where other people get a taste of you? And it causes a response. I may not like who they believe in, but I appreciate how hard of a worker they are. I appreciate they're always honest. I appreciate they don't fly off the handle when they're pressured. We have to ask this. If if you're not persecuted, if you don't feel the weight of persecution on you, we have to ask, am I actually a threat to the kingdom of darkness? If I'm, not, if I'm not feeling the pressure of persecution in some way or another, am I actually a threat to the kingdom of darkness? George Whitfield wrote, wrote this, Stand a while and examine yourselves. For by what has been said, you may gather one mark whereby you may judge whether you are Christians or not. Were you ever persecuted for righteousness' sake? If not, you never yet lived godly in Christ our Lord. It's an important qualifier. Those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's power in a holy life. When Christ truly is manifested in the nooks and crannies of our hearts and affections, we are changed. And the world tastes it. The world may grow uncomfortable with it. The world may reject it. They may even see it and want it. Longing for the joy and the freedom that Christ has given you, yet they don't want the God who has given it to you. There is power in a holy life. Power in a gospel, in a godly life. We must have... It's, uh, Christian morality is an unabashed must. Must. Does this Holy Spirit not have the power to change us? We are servants, and we are God's kids. But are we obeying the Father? When we are constantly tempted to seek out comfortable, persecutionless Christianity. I was listening to a song earlier this week by Isla Worship, and this song, they repeat a number of times. Or this line, they, they repeat, if the Son of God... Could lay down his life, then who am I to hold on to mine? If the Son of God could lay down his life, then who am I to hold on to mine? If the Son of God could lay down his life, then who am I to hold on to mine? What about the promise, the promise of persecution? Let me give you a few things that are promising about this reality of experiencing persecution as a Christian. One is the promise of the evangelistic effect of persecution. A few weeks ago, Bill talked about the evangelistic effect of enduring suffering. This is more specific. The promise of the evangelistic effect of persecution. In Acts 14.22, at the end of his time in Lystra, it says this, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They had had left Lystra. Listen to what they do. They then returned to Lystra where he had already been stoned. And they went on to to Iconium and Antioch. They retraced their steps through those persecuting cities. What do they do there? They strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying this, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There's a road that leads to the kingdom of God and it leads through persecution. Hear this. Guess who's from Lystra? Guess who probably sat with his mother and his grandmother listening to Paul? Hearing the stories from the Old Testament that would make him wise for salvation as we'll talk about next week. Who saw perhaps uncles, perhaps friends, business leaders stone Paul who heard Paul come back to Lystra and say, take note of this. Tribulations is what you will experience on the way to the kingdom of God. Timothy. Lystra was Timothy's hometown. The persecuting of Paul had an evangelistic effect on that city, and specifically on young Timothy. I read about that situation in Sri Lanka earlier. There's a man who's an evangelical member of Sri Lanka's parliament. And this is how he addressed lawmakers. His, his name is Abraham Sumantharan. He says, we believe in Jesus Christ, who came into this world. This is in a session of parliament. Did you hear that? It's in a session of parliament. Parliament. We believe in Jesus Christ who came into this world, suffered as we do, and took the worst of evil onto himself and was crucified unjustly. But he defeated all evil through self-sacrificial love, which is what we celebrate on Easter, Resurrection Day. We are grieving, but we will not allow hate and revenge to overtake us. Now, hear what a Muslim member of parliament said in response. I bow to the Christian community who have proven their magnanimity in practicing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. We await a gospel explosion in Sri Lanka through the persecution of the saints. Second promise, promise of endurance, of sharing in Christ's suffering and having the Spirit rest on you. Some of you know this. You know this in the present, that when you are reviled, the Spirit gives you a peace that could only come from Him. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 4:12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The target that is on your back is the glory of God. It's a Spirit who rests upon you, and the opposition of the world knows it. We have a promise of endurance. We will last to the end, because of Christ's faithfulness to us, even as we are persecuted. The third promise. Promise of full rescue and deliverance to God's kingdom. Promise of full rescue and deliverance to God's kingdom. We'll get to it in a few weeks, but just hear a couple of things that Paul says. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Later on in chapter 4, watch out for Alexander Coppersmith. He did me great harm, persecuted me. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, Timothy, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. Did you hear this? Gospel proclamation brought persecution and the Lord stood by him. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. And then hear this. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I finish with this. Because there may be no greater story that illustrates everything that we're talking about today. You may have read The Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan in the early 1600s. He was an English pastor. He was imprisoned for 12 years, given the opportunity for release to return to his wife and to his kids if he would just stop preaching, which he would not do. While in jail, he wrote the book that is the second most published book in the English language, "The Pilgrim's Progress." In that book, you have Christian who grows up in the city of destruction. He hears the gospel. He hears the gospel. The gospel for the first part of the gospel is, "Flee from the wrath that is to come." Understand that judgment is coming on this city. Run. And so he flees. And as he flees, he understands that he has this weight of sin on his back. Goes to the cross. His burden is relieved. Read Pilgrim's Progress. Psalm 36, Ecclesiastes, Pilgrim's Progress. Find the modern edition if you need to A Pilgrim's Progress. It's all good. As Pilgrim progresses on the road after having been justified, his burden released, he follows on this road to the celestial city, And he encounters all sorts of different people, all sorts of different sufferings. But there's one place in particular where he is persecuted. This place is called Vanity Fair. See if you don't see us reflected, our culture reflected, us as Christians reflected in this. Then I saw, this is Bunyan writing, in my dream that Christian and faithful, faithful is Christian's traveling companion, They descended into the town of Vanity. Actually, could we have that third slide up there, please? Thank you. They descended into the town of Vanity. They could hear the sounds of a fair which is held all the year round. It is called Vanity Fair. Most fairs are merry places, but not this one. Not for our travelers. For here one of them was destined to die. As in other fairs of less importance, the streets are named after different countries. There is the French row and the Italian row and the British row, where the commodities of these countries are sold and bought. Indeed, there are stalls where every foolish trifle in the world is up for sale, knick-knacks of gold and silver, baubles and bric-a-brac and precious stones. In addition, you could buy titles and honors and preferments to high office and vain pleasures and empty delights of every kind. Moving busily among the crowds are cheats and rogues and mountebanks. The air is full of fearful oaths, and murder, they say, is as common as theft. This fair is no newly erected business, but a thing of long standing. More than a thousand years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city, as these two honest persons are, and Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, with Apollyon and Legion and their companions, perceiving that the pilgrims' way lay through this town of vanity, contrived to set up a fair here. For he that would pass by this, bypass this town must also go out of the world if he were to bypass this town. So Christian and faithful had to pass through this lusty fair and hoping they would go unnoticed, they pulled their collars up around their faces. But the rabble were quick to spot them for they jeered at them for their outlandish clothes, robes of righteousness. Then they jeered at them for their foreign accents, Finally, they asked them angrily, Why aren't you buying our merchandise? Buy, buy, buy. We buy only the truth, they said, and put their fingers in their ears and sought to turn away their eyes from beholding vanity. At that, the townsmen were the more enraged and the noisiest of hubbubs ensued. News of the hubbub presently reached the burgomaster. He took the pilgrims to be lunatics and bade his officers arrest them as disturbers of the peace and take their weapons They were placed in a cage with their feet in stocks as a public spectacle. They lay there for some time and were made the object of any man's sport. For their part, they encouraged one another, Christian and faithful did, to trust in the Lord, and they behaved themselves most wisely, giving the passers by good words for bad, not railing for railing, reviling for reviling, but contrarywise, they blessed those who walked by. This further enraged the men of the fair, who now demanded in loud voices that Christian and faithful should stand trial in the courts. So a day was appointed, and they were brought before the judge. The judge was Lord Hategood, and witnesses were called. The first, whose name was Envy, took the oath. Then, pointing his finger at Faithful, he said, My Lord, I have known this man Faithful for a long time, which was a lie for a start. He is one of the vilest persons in the country. Superstition was the second witness. For myself, I have no great acquaintance with the prisoner, nor do I desire to know him further. For in my talk with him, he did condemn our laudable religion as a thing of naught. The third witness was a Mr. Pickthank. My lord, and you gentlemen all, I too have heard this fellow speak things that ought not to be spoke. He spoke contemptuously of our noble Prince Beelzebub and of his honorable friends, Lord Luxury, Lord Lechery, and Sir Habit Greedy. He also railed at you, my lord, who were appointed his judge. He called you, I regret to say, an ungodly villain. It was clear now that Faithful had been singled out by all three witnesses for their attack. So the judge addressed himself to Faithful. You have heard, sirrah, how these honest gentlemen have witnessed against you. You are beyond doubt a vile renegade. Yet in order that all men may see our gentleness towards you, let us hear what you have to say in your defense. To which Faithful replied, I say then that in my belief, your laws and your religion are flat against the word of God and diametrically opposed to Christianity. If you can prove me wrong then I am ready to recant. As to Mr. Pickthank's allegations, I abide by what he said. Your prince and his attendants, by this gentleman named, are fitter to be in hell than in this town. And so the Lord have mercy on my soul. The judge, in summing up, quoted many learned instances from the laws of the Medes and the Persians to prove we know not what. Then he called on the jury all lawful men and true, to consider the verdict. The foreman, Mr. Blindman, said, "'I clearly see this man to be a heretic.' "'Away with such a fellow,' said Mr. No-Good. "'Aye,' said Mr. Malice, "'for I hate the very looks of him.' Huh, "'A sorry scrub,' said Mr. High Mind. "'Hang him, hang him,' said Mr. Heady. "'Hanging is too good for him,' said Mr. Cruelty.' So they found Faithful guilty, according to their laws. And after endless indignities, they burnt him at the stake. Thus Faithful met his end. But I saw in my dream that behind the crowds, there stood a chariot and horses waiting for Faithful, who, as soon as his enemies had done with him, was taken up into it and wafted through the clouds to the sound of trumpets. So in truth, he fared better than his friend Christian. He would arrive first at the celestial city, and having been faithful unto death, the king would give him a crown of life. Well, where had Christian been all this time? Well, one of the men of the fair who had participated in all of this His name was Hopeful. And Hopeful was much moved by the calm deportment, the attitude, and actions of the pilgrims. And while the crowd, the people crowded round to see the execution, Hopeful succeeded, as sometimes happens in a dream, in rescuing Christian away to safety. And now, Christian and Hopeful traveled on together. Oh Lord, we confess your presence because we need your presence. We need your spirit to powerfully work on us at heart levels to give us new loves for you, to reinvigorate sleeping hearts. Wake us up, God. Forgive us of our iniquity. Cleanse us and make us vessels for your good work. And Lord, when persecution comes, may we endure it as Christ endured the cross. May we not revile, even as Christ did not revile. May our mouths be silent. And may the joy that is set before us as it was set before you define our lives. Oh God, rouse us. If you don't do it for the other churches in our city, do it for ours, God, we pray. In your great name, Jesus.